You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Simply Safe. Take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday sale and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com slash missionlog. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash missionlog for 40% off your entire system. Hurry, this offer ends soon. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 425, Chimera. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we establish a link with every single molecule of Star Trek, from the episodes to the films, in order to seek out the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Chimera, the one where Odo's loyalties are put to the test by one of his 100 wayward kin, who sounds strangely similar to... um, Can't place the face... Sounds like... Wurlitzer? Oh, look, I I know it's on the tip of your tongue. Don't hurt yourself, Norman. I'll get to that bit in trivia. But first, why don't you tell everyone how they can engage with us? Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323 522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. Let's see. KB. No, that's the toy Mm. company. Mm. J&B? No, that's that's the booze. Mm. Uh, You know what? Forget it. Um, John, please save my brain. Um, JG Champion with this, this week's trivia. So close. I I promise we'll get to it. Uh, Today's episode, Chimera, was written by Rene Etiveria, and we just recently covered Rene's script for Covenant, and now he's back with a story that went through many permutations as well. Originally, the focus would have been more on Odo being convinced by Lass of humanoid prejudices and just volunteering to go off into the cosmos with him. Cisco would have given the speech to make him reconsider. And you can read more about that in Terry Erdman's DS9 Companion. Basically, we all dodged a bullet there. Um, it was directed by Steve Posey. Only a few Trek credits for Steve. We talked about his first one when we covered Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. And we mentioned then that he had a number of genre credits like Xena, Buffy, and Babylon 5. Now, I do love this bit of trivia that the love scene toward the end was something that they lucked into because it had originally been planned the way we see it here for 
a simple investigation. Instead, since Odo appeared in that love scene in his solid form, that opened up the possibility here to have something very unique with Kira. Uh, Another effect uh, at the top of the episode, the creature flying through space. Look, I thought at first it would be our second glimpse of the Gomtu since TNG's Tin Man. And actually, the producers were thinking of reusing an effect from next door at Voyager. This is, in fact, a brand new digital effect based on a design by John Eves. Now let's talk about our guest stars. Uh, We do meet a couple of Klingons. Those are played by actor John Eric Bentley and then longtime Star Trek stunt performer and fight coordinator Dennis Madalone. Um, He's the one who dies. Spoiler. Uh, And we meet a new changeling, Lass. And if you look closely, you may have already recognized the actor behind the prosthetics. It's J.G. Hertzler. Okay, that's who you're looking for, Norman. Mm. J.G., credited here with his middle name, Garmin. And it's interesting to note that there are a lot of actors considered before he got the part. Yeah, they auditioned a ton of people. They weren't sure exactly who it would be. They strongly considered Jeffrey Combs. But then they thought, well, Combs is already doing two other recurring characters. How much more can we give him? We need somebody who can stand up in gravitas to what Renee brings to the screen as well. So after many tries, many false starts, let's give JG a shot. And obviously he looks very different with the uh, prosthetic. And one important detail is that he wanted to bring a new voice to this character. So it was distinct and different from Martok. You know, Norman, you were struggling with the name. You were trying to recognize the name, the face under the mask, and indeed it was J.G. Hertzler. But guess what? He's doing Shatner. So he decided when uh, this character needed a new voice uh, and it needed to be something different from Martok, he was listening to the cadence, the breaths, the pauses, and decided, you know what? Let me do something to dramatic effect that sounds a little bit more like Shatner. So he's not doing an imitation. He's not doing the comedic impression that maybe we've all grown to know and love, but that was the inspiration for what became Lass. Meet a little glowing friend. Is he actually Odo's friend? I'll let Norman tell the story. He won't leave out the whistles and bells. Prologue. Chief Engineer Miles O'Brien has just woken up from a lengthy nap as the runabout ferrying both he and Odo back to Deep Space Nine just dropped out of warp upon entering the Bajoran system. Still a bit groggy, Miles soon notices Odo fondling a rather expensive-looking knick-knack. At least that's what Odo was told it was while shopping for Kira, and when Miles was attending a conference from which they are now presently returning. Suddenly, a panic-stricken O'Brien realizes that he didn't get anything for Keiko and tries to persuade Odo to sell him his box of Regellian chocolates purchased specifically for Colonel Kira. But before any deal could be struck, a strange alien ship, or perhaps a fish lake creature, appears from nowhere, cruises straight past them, and disappears. And even though their sensors cannot detect them, 
their hearing can, as both Miles and Oda listen to something strange thump around inside the conduits of their runabout. With Phaser at the ready, Miles observes a strange, gelatinous substance ooze forth from a vent, and before both he and Oda realize what is happening, the gelatinous goo reshapes itself into a very familiar humanoid form. Act 1. With Phaser drawn and trained at who he believes is a founder, Miles's apprehension is assuaged by Odo, who believes that this merely curious shapeshifter is one of the 100 changelings who were sent out to explore the galaxy, only to eventually return to the founders with information about their travels and experiences with other life forms. The metamorph, as it calls itself, recognizes who Odo is and surrenders himself into his custody and safety as an act of good faith to avoid any unnecessary conflict on the way back to Deep Space Nine. Upon returning to the station, in Captain Sisko's office, Benjamin is wary about having an unidentified changeling on the station, albeit in a secure holding cell, given the current state of the war and his previous encounters with the Founders. Odo, however, assures Captain Sisko that this new changeling is not a Founder, with both his word and with proof from Dr. Bashir, who has proven that it doesn't possess the morphogenic virus that plagues the Founders and the Great Link itself. Trusting Odo at his word, Captain Sisko turns over the changeling to Odo's care. As Odo escorts his new companion throughout Deep Space Nine and the Promenade, it cannot help but brusquely comment on a variety of observations regarding how he and Odo are genetically similar, but vastly different in both their experiences and their age. Their discussion is more of a fact-finding mission, and in many ways consistent with their programming to seek out new life forms and new civilizations. However, where they radically differ is in their trust of humanoid life. Eventually, the changeling introduces himself as Loss, who, in the language of the Varlon species who befriended him, means changeable. Upon reaching his quarters, Odo graciously invites Loss to feel free to explore his new accommodations, and in doing so, Loss curiously picks up a photo of Colonel Kira and realizes that the only reason why Odo would stay amongst these petty, squabbling, and limited humanoids is because of her. Odo tries to explain away certain complications about his chosen lifestyle and offers Loss an opportunity to link with him instead, and upon doing so, Loss truly understands the depths of Odo's sacrifices. Act 2 the following day, Kira stops by Odo's security station to hear all about his newfound changeling companion, only to discover that Odo's mind and emotions are keeping him at a distance. Odo admits to Kira that he linked with Loss so that they could discover things about each other in only that sacred way changelings can. And even though Kira has her reservations about such a sudden and intimate exchange between Odo and Loss, she still very much wants to meet with him, and Odo obliges. Later in Quarks, Odo introduces Loss to Nerys, Ezri, Dr. Bashir, and lastly to O'Brien, who he has already met, albeit under different circumstances. Loss, however brusque and curt, reveals his great distrust of humanoid lifeforms as seen through his experiences with the Varlins, who he believes disrupted what was once a very peaceful and thriving biological ecosystem. Chief O'Brien makes matters worse by admitting that it's difficult to trust any species who can change its form at will, that is except for Odo. Leaving to avoid any further uncomfortable conversation, Odo chastises Loss for being so confrontational. However, Loss takes exception to Odo's attitude 
and tells him he's the one who has made far too many concessions to be like his so-called friends, who only tolerate him because he has chosen to sacrifice his special gifts. Lost believes that the only way both of them can truly thrive and reach their fullest potential is to leave the station and seek out the remainder of the 100 changelings who are still roaming the galaxy. Act 3. In Kira's quarters, Odo confesses to Nerys what he and Lost discussed and how it is somewhat of a temptation to him, but he also reassures her that no matter how tempting it may seem, that he is happy with their life together on the station. But Kira knows Odo far too well to accept what he's saying without some skepticism. Odo senses her concerns and reassures her that none of that matters because he loves her. Upon returning to his quarters, Odo is shocked to see a ball of flame flickering away at the center of the room, but realizes before activating the fire suppression system that it is in fact loss. Odo had no idea that changelings could achieve such complex patterns, which provides yet another opportunity for Loss to link with Odo and share with him all of the possibilities they could achieve if they only left the station together. Odo confesses that he has decided to stay and persuades Loss to do the same. Sometime later in the promenade, the chief laments to Dr. Bashir that he's going to have to fix the environmental controls as they and apparently everyone else on the promenade is surrounded by a thick layer of fog. However, as Odo appears on the scene, he assures the chief that there's nothing wrong with the environmental controls and that the fog is Loss himself, just enjoying himself in a way only changelings can by expressing themselves to taking different forms. However, as Loss returns to his more recognized humanoid form, two Klingons berate him for being one of the founders, and before Odo realizes what is happening, one of the Klingons attempts to stab Loss with his dagger, which passes through Loss unremarkably. However, violence begets violence, and Loss lashes out in kind by shapeshifting one of his arms into a sword blade and impaling the other Klingon assailant. Act 4. In Captain Sisko's office, he, Odo, and Worf discuss the legal ramifications regarding Loss's crime. Odo advocates for Loss, saying that what he did was only in self-defense, that the Klingons were the aggressors, and that they attacked Loss first. However, General Martok is pressing for Loss to be extradited from Deep Space Nine in order to be prosecuted by the Klingon justice system. Martok has also requested that Odo, due to his closeness to the case and to Loss, to be removed from the investigation, citing conflict of interest. Odo is beside himself and bewildered that the Klingons would choose to mire this whole affair in legal proceedings, which Odo feels is not the honorable Klingon way. Before he leaves, Odo asks Captain Sisko why he has been removed from the case, to which Sisko replies because of the delicate nature of the investigation. Relieved, Odo is somewhat comforted that Sisko's answer didn't say it was because he is a changeling. Later in Odo's security office, the last person he wanted to see was Quark, who arrives unannounced yet bearing a gift in the form of cold and calculated advice, warning Odo to watch his step and that species, like the Ferengi, like the Humans, and in this case, the especially warlike and barbaric Klingons, who easily still harbor a millennia of evolutionary programmed fear and hatred for different life forms, especially those as terrifying as the changelings. Afterwards, as Odo visits with Loss in his holding cell, and under strict observation from the guard on duty, Loss confronts Odo regarding why he has chosen to remain on the station, surrounded by those who claim to be his friends, but have proven to keep Odo at a certain comfortable distance. 
Loss's unfiltered honesty, especially the revelation that humanoids tolerate that which is different according to their needs and comfort levels, gives Odo great pause and concern. And when he finally confesses to Kira about being torn between accepting the desire to join Loss and seek out his own kind with a freedom to express himself as a changeling and to be what he is supposed to be, their relationship stands at a crossroads, one that Kira resolves herself to sacrifice. Upon reaching the holding cells, Kira dismisses the guard so that she could talk to Loss privately. Once confident that the guard has left the area, Kira lowers the force field and gives Loss specific instructions as to how to escape the station. When he asks her why, Kira responds with unwavering clarity, I love him. Act 5. Standing bewildered in his own office, Captain Sisko is at a loss for words as to how he's going to explain Loss's escape to an undoubtedly irate General Martok. Kira recounts how Loss was able to change form into plasma energy and could have escaped at any time and left the explanation at that. After leaving Sisko's office, Kira confesses to Odo that she allowed Loss to escape because she wants Odo to stay, only for the right reasons, and not because of some manufactured moral obligation, namely to her and their relationship. Arriving at the underground mine on Corallus III, the place where Kira told Loss to flee, Odo reunites with his fellow changeling only to tell him that he's come all this way to not go with Loss to find their wayward kin in the vastness of the galaxy. Loss, furious and disappointed in Odo, demands to know why. Does love conquer all? Is that it? All Odo can offer Loss at this time is simply a fond farewell, knowing that he will never understand the kind of love that he has for Kira, and no explanation and no comparison to the intimacy of the Great Link itself can make Loss understand the depths and the truth of what Kira means to Odo. When Odo returns to Deep Space Nine, he finds Kira alone in her quarters, praying solely for his safety and happiness. And when she confesses that if she has done anything to him that made him feel limited in any way, Odo transforms himself into a glowing blanket of amber light and wraps himself around Kira in a way that she expresses in a smile of pure contentment. The end. Okay, look, I'm so glad that you called it out because here's sweet, thoughtful Odo getting a couple of gifts for Kira, and they've only been gone a day. I, do you think the writers are just in on it at this point? I didn't get anything for Keiko. No kidding, Chief. No kidding you didn't get anything for Keiko. <laughs> I think this speaks probably to like so many... Uh, people out there that have been in like long marriages with children and all of a sudden, oh, darn it, I forgot. I think it's actually an honest mistake just because they've been together for so long and they've already gone through so many anniversaries. Like Odo, this is all brand it's new. It's brand new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like the fun of it is, yes, it does speak to an actual thing about long-term relationships. I also think mm -hmm. the writers at this point are like, oh my God, we, we have failed this relationship so badly. <laughs> let's just, let's let the chief forget to buy his wife anything because she's never around. See, I want to know like what Miles was going to use for currency to pay off a changeling who doesn't really need anything. That, that, that's great. Yes. Right? If you have to pay him off in work, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, aside from knickknacks, of course. Yeah, but sure. this is like an all new to him. Like, has Odo been actually drawing like a salary from Deep Space Nine? God, that's <laughs> wow. That is really well. He's got a well. No, he doesn't have to pay for anything at Quarks because he's he doesn't eat or drink. Correct. So, oh, so many questions. So many more right? questions raised. 
I love the design of Johnny's design of the ship that flies past. I think that it's not it's not seen enough in Deep Space Nine. It may not even be seen enough in Star Trek in general, just seeing these wonderful alien organic type ships, beings, biotechnology, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it or label it as, because it's just so refreshing to see something that's not architecturally angular. Yeah. Yeah. I do love stuff like that. And and I wonder, you know, of course, I, I've said on our show and to many other people, you know, I hope that I live to see the day that we find any evidence of any life out there beyond Earth, um, even if it so much was a microbe that came from another place. Um, but it really does sort of spark the imagination to wonder, look, we, we have things like tardigrades that can survive the trip to space, you know, survive mm-hmm. the trip to a total vacuum and come back. Could there be things that could actually live um, from uh, other, you know, whether, whether it's they're munching on space dust and absorbing energy from solar radiation or whatever? I, I and I, I love that Star Trek at least played with that idea that not mm-hmm. every alien is a biped in a spaceship. Exactly. Uh, speaking of the runabout, so when Loss comes on board, or we don't know it's Loss, obviously, mm-hmm. but when the Changeling comes on board. Miles has his phaser drawn, but the chief of security does not. That would have been Odo's first reflex. So I'm wondering, is this a type of foreshadowing, painting Miles in a certain way at the very beginning of the episode? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's so obvious now when you mention it, and uh, that could very well be it. it. Are they indicating some sort of a sense that Odo has that this is a non-threatening thing and is it yeah uh, kind of telegraphing to the audience that Miles is a bit uh, anxious Mm, yeah indeed I do love the use of monoform like you know there are so (laughs) many interesting choices of language Um, right and I like the fact that uh, you're acknowledging that not everybody has had the same uh, uh, language references that everybody else has. So just saying something like solids, which we've gotten used to uh, hearing from people like Odo or other founders, but Las wouldn't necessarily have heard that. And right. monoform is such a great way to just describe anything that is other than him. So mm-hmm. uh, good, good use of uh, language there. So I love watching Rene act, and I love watching how he understands Odo from a very nuanced level. When he was walking Lost originally at the very beginning through the station after being, uh, being given custody to him from Captain Sisko, he walks around the first part of their conversation with his arms folded. Mm-hmm. You know, and in behavioral studies, folded arms usually means a defensive or closed-off position. But as he walks through and, and learns a little bit more about their relationship— he drops his arms and he becomes just a little bit more open and free, just in his body language. I'm wondering, again, if there's some type of like uh, behavioral cue that they're giving Odo from time to time for us to be able to clue in on. Or am I just reading into it too much? Well, see, that's interesting. Because my, my note was just – it wasn't so much about what the body language was saying. I was just interested in the fact that they were mirroring each other a few times. And, mm-hmm. and it was just this idea of like, well, either Odo or Lass are finding comfort in each other or it is this sort of subtle social thing where you do tend to – 
subconsciously, just your body will do that. It will mimic the body language of, of other people. And I thought it was – maybe that was by choice. Maybe it was a happy accident. Um, but mm. I, I thought it was cool watching them together because they, they both have such presence. And then you can tell that there's something about the physicality that is uh, that is part of the story here as well. I, I did, you know. I think we'll get into the linking thing quite a bit more. By the way, uh, what is a film stake? <laughs> it, it it looked very interesting and uh, uh, very uh, kind of off putting. <laughs> but but there was a film stake in uh, Quark's bar that was about to get served. How long can you keep it warm before it gets too tough? I, right, exactly. The, these are important questions we want to know. Uh, but I, I do want to talk because linking <laughs> is an important part of the story here, and there are many ways to go with what linking means and how it is expressed and how it feels. And uh, there's this one bit here that I thought was uh, interesting. Odo saying to Kira, linking comes to changelings as naturally as talking does to humanoids. And this is another kind of tip of the hat to the progress and the longevity of DS9 being able to build these details into its world, into its universe, that linking has been shown for different purposes. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's been a very intimate personal thing. Sometimes it's been for manipulation. Uh, but it is profound. It is deep. And it is something that they need and crave. But it's a form of communication that is alien to us. And it reminds me uh, of kind of how scientists and, and behavioral studies look at animals and how they communicate with each other that are different from because they can't just call somebody up or send a text, you know? Not yet. Uh, Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) But like I remember watching a very interesting uh, short documentary uh, about dogs and uh, it was a great moment of showing a human walking through a room and all the sensory input that they take and what it means. And then a dog walking through the same room and all the sensory input that they take and what it means to them. And I just thought that Mm -hmm. was so cool. You can have the same space in the the same stimuli but totally different experiences of that space and stimuli. Let's kind of like take a look at the link a little bit further. So the link is supposed to be this instantaneous sharing of information, thoughts, ideas, concepts, emotions, maybe some details. Mm-hmm. I don't know how specific. Mm-hmm. When we first saw the the founder, the female changeling, mm-hmm. explain this to Odo, she said it in a way where the drop becomes the ocean, and then the ocean becomes the drop. When they separate themselves, how much of that separation is still them? That is such a great question. I'm glad that you asked that because I was wondering the same thing. Is the In this case, could you separate out and say that changeling consciousness maybe or self-identity comes from some particular part of that and the other material, the other goo, doesn't really matter? Could it Could it simply be shared? But they still maintain their individuality after they've mm-hmm. merged and separated. So, right. I, I, yeah, but, the, but they are sharing something in the realm of their thoughts and ideas as well. There, there is something that, that isn't necessarily uh, physical in that respect. How far does that rabbit hole go down? Because... If Loss understands the reason why Odo is staying on the station and not becoming a founder and not participating in the war but can become part of their people, how how much detail is there? Like, 
Is he also picking up on security code clearances, military strategies, things of that nature, especially during wartime? Yeah. I mean, think about if Odo told Cisco that he linked with Loss. Cisco would have thrown him in the brig. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, okay, is that something that you could actually, as a changeling, prevent? Can you close off certain information? And if you can, what then becomes the point of linking? <laughs> because it's just exactly. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Oh, by the way, so when, again, this changeling stuff is so fascinating yeah. because it really doesn't have a lot of boundaries. So when everyone is walking through the lost fog, <laughs> can he pickpocket their stuff? I, I, or that's, you know, okay. Or is he like one giant foggy shaped eye? I mean, think about yeah. that. I mean, yeah, yeah. sure. If, if I were the Klingons, he'd be like, we just saw you turn from fog that we were surrounded by yeah. into this humanoid thing. You are literally like invading our personal space. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, because they can be singular, uh, the changelings do understand what personal space is. You know, so he's got to know on some level that this is not going to be well received. But, you know, that, that, that'll be stuff that we'll come back to, I'm sure. I will say that fog effect was very clever and really well done because yeah. easy enough to fill a room with uh, fake fog. But then the, the sort of re-coalescing of that fog and then the morph effect uh, back into the singular loss was very cool. Um, so, yeah, nice job there. I'd like to ask uh, you and the audience uh, a question about Miles Okay, in this episode, the way they're framing him. Because when he said what he said to Loss at Quark's, he said, we're not the ones who can disguise ourselves as anything we want. Hmm. Should there have been a line that said, I'm an engineer, not a diplomat? <laughs> That's uh, okay. Yeah, I, I look forward to maybe picking that apart a little bit later then, because... You know, Loss comes in and he puts everybody on the defensive right away. And I, I'm going to have some words about that as well because I, I do think it was clearly inappropriate. What should be the right answer to that? And, of course, look, O'Brien's a bit uh, at a disadvantage here anyway because he is the guy who was holding the gun on Loss when they first met. But, mm -hmm. hmm. <laughs> That's that it, it was not the most diplomatic thing. But, but the thing that I like about that scene is that we've gotten a couple of scenes like this before, and they work well in DS9. And, it, and it's a scene where you just got the crew hanging out in quarks, encountering someone else, and then they're just all sort of naturally on the same page about what's wrong with the outsider, as friends would be. I refer you also to the end of Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. You know, mm -hmm. there was nothing that needed to be said there. They just immediately kind of locked into, oh, I, I know what we're doing now, you know. Yeah. And they, they mm -hmm. play that kind of thing well on this show. You know, when Loss morphs his arm into a sword, mm -hmm. I was really, really waiting for him to say, no, that the whole the mind's bigger. Yeah, yeah. But more like, that's not a knife. Yeah. <laughs> That's a knife. Sure, of course. <laughs> classic, classic. Uh, but on a more serious note, from production level standpoint, was it me or did you also notice how incredibly crimson red the underneath of Quark's eyes were when he was in that scene with Odo telling him about kind of like the barbarism of, of their races and their species? It almost seemed like they wanted to create a very specific stare 
from Quark and say, like, you got to pay attention to me, like, right now. This is deadly serious, what I'm telling you. Interesting. Interesting. I, I wonder if that was specific in the makeup for that scene or if it was specific in the lighting in that scene or what. But that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a good catch. Um, I'm not sure exactly if they did that. As we do every now and then, you know, I got to pick out some good lines here. I love Odo telling Lass, I don't think you have to worry about an overcrowded social schedule, <laughs> to which Lass says, <laughs> good. And I love this because this is kind of very defensive. It's like, nobody likes you. Well, fine. I don't like them either. You know, <laughs> it was just very obvious, but funny. So I have a couple timestamps that I really mm-hmm. want, like, maybe people to return to when they watch this episode. So at minute 3420, mm-hmm. I love how Odo is framed by the window in Kira's quarters. Mm-hmm. Because he's talking about how he wants to go, maybe wants to go with Lost to explore the galaxy. And the way that he's pointing his thumb towards the window, mm. it's just so perfectly framed. I.e., John, please use this for the cover art for this particular episode <laughs> type of framing. It's really, really nicely shot. And also, at timestamp 3543, Worf tells Cisco by fleeing, the changeling has demonstrated his guilt. Ooh, yeah. And I don't know how many of you spend time watching Picard soliloquies on YouTube as much as I do. You probably all do. Uh-huh. Worf, did you not learn anything from your conversation with Picard about being innocent until proven guilty in the episode The Drumhead? Where Worf says, sir, if a man were not afraid of the truth, he would answer. Mm-hmm. And Picard says, oh, no. Yeah. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that. oh, how far we have come since the uh, wise tutelage of Captain Picard. Hey, we'll point out a funny line. Where Worf says to Cisco though, in that scene uh, about the Klingons, they never file charges. It is an honorable, <laughs> which is just <laughs> brilliant. It, it sort of harkens back to, you know, First, let's kill all the lawyers. It is just mm-hmm. sort of like, okay, that that's kind of – you. You have a point. <laughs> yeah, I like the bit um, of trivia that you were talking about uh, when, when Odo turned himself into this blanket of energy and how people found that sexual in nature. Mm. I didn't see it that way at all. Mm. I actually thought it was just more of kind of like being wrapped in a comfortable blanket. Yeah. You know, like something that would reassure you that everything's going to be okay. That's how I took that scene. But I can see how people would be like, what, is she having um, an orgasmic experience with Odo, something that they've never shared before? Yeah, I mean, it, it was intended as a love scene. Uh, but if, if you say love scene or sex scene or whatever, you know, all of that exists on a spectrum. And, and the implication there is, okay, Odo had an experience earlier where he was a solid and he gets to have this physical experience with another being. And, and that changes him for the better. You know, he gets to experience his love and loss. This experience with Kira meant to be physical, but also they're, what they're really emphasizing here and what I think they did beautifully so and artistically so is that there is a level of intimacy there between them that is very powerful. And, and I think they sold it on every level. What do shapeshifters smell like? If you have a shapeshifter in the form of a fine mist... Does he leave the great scent of pine? We will get right back to Chimera, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, Norman, 
you know, I hate to put it this way, but uh, but it's the truth. If you're using the internet without a VPN, like say ExpressVPN, it, it would be kind of like ooh, something very personal, like um, being in your bathroom and not closing the door. Oh, I know. I, I just I just put that image into your head, and I'm sorry, but but <laughs> and everyone else is yeah, here. yeah. But we're just trying to drive home why this is a bad idea and why you should protect yourself when you can. Well, it's even worse, John. It's like going to the bathroom and not closing the door and talking on your cell phone at the same time. Oh, oh, that, that's, oh, yeah, yeah, that is a deadly combination. I mean, you don't want to do that. This is why everyone needs a VPN, because you need protection and you need privacy. And internet service providers know every single website that you visit if you don't have a VPN. So ISPs can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who you then use your data to target you. Your data targets you. Ooh, not, not, not a good thought. And that is why you and I use ExpressVPN. And the reason we do that is because the technology behind ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So your online activity can't be seen by anyone. And yes, it is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just That's reflex at this point, I hope, for all of you. So you just fire up the app, you click one button, and that app is rated number one by CNET and TechRadar. It works on phones, laptops, routers even. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. And the great thing about using ExpressVPN is that your one account can be shared on a multitude of all of your different devices, from your phone to your desktop computer to your pads, if you're using pads, if you're that kind of a person, pad or multiple pads, much like the Deep Space Nine universe. <laughs> Never pad for everything. Yeah. And what I love about ExpressVPN is that it's just this very simple one-button secure acknowledgement you know, from the app. You're connected. You hit that button, connect, you're connected, you're secure. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash mission log. Hey, if you've ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there is no better time than right now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Mission Log listeners 40% off their award-winning home security. Now, we love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. It's in the name. It's right there. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. And as much as we would like for you to take our word on it, Simply Safe was even named Best Home Security System of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. You can easily customize a system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations from Simply Safe. These are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments, and it's a really easy way to start having a bit more peace of mind. So take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday sale and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/missionlog. Again, that's Simply Safe. S I M P L I S-A-F-E dot com slash mission log for 40% off your entire system. Hurry, this offer ends soon. Norman, we've reached an episode where I feel like there are 
so many directions, <laughs> so many possible directions to go, so many lines to discuss. And uh, I look forward to how many of those that we may hit and how many of those we may leave for our listeners to hit as well. But there is one thing I want to bring up right at the top here because it has always bothered me and it will continue to bother me. Hmm. I still have big questions about the whole changeling plan, the whole like sending out beings with no knowledge, no understanding of their mission, it, it does raise a question like now we've seen changelings who can just glide through space in the form of a, a spacefaring creature. So is that how they do it? Does somebody from the, the founder's planet uh, say envelop when they have created, spawned, generated a new changeling form that can be identified as a singular changeling being? envelop them in the form of something that would glide through space and then just drop them off at another planet? Because that could take a very long time just to take that trip, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So and you have to catch them apparently when they know nothing. They, they literally have no knowledge, no understanding of their mission or anything. Then sometime after they've been dropped off, they just sort of figure it out. And inevitably they come back to the changeling planet, and they basically say, yeah, solids are terrible. I, you know, like there, there is seemingly very little effort at understanding, and it seems like their whole existence is based on this self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we take a hundred, mm -hmm. we send them out, but we don't prepare them for anything. And that simply proves to us how terrible the outside world is. So it becomes almost like this religious fanaticism at a certain point where, yeah, we just – we absorb them back because we've proven to ourselves that we are the only thing that is safe for beings like us. As opposed to what I might propose here, uh, a little more nuanced approach, which is take the knowledge that you have learned, <laughs> impart that to beings that could volunteer for the job, go out there and do it and live among others. And you know what? It may still be a very difficult thing to do. But if your two modes are either know nothing and get abused in the process or show up and try to subvert and conquer everything around you, you will continue to have the same problem. I guess um, if you're looking at kind of like the meta explanation of this, one could make the argument that these 100 were pre-programmed to absorb information in a certain way. And then once that, once I guess some activation is tripped within their system or within their psyche or whatever, it's really hard. I'm trying to defend the position and I really can't, <laughs> but I have to believe that, that there is some type of programming in these beings, in these 100, when they feel like they have to come back. It's kind of like salmon spawning upstream and they return to the place where they spawned. You know, it's just part of that that evolutionary chart in their, you know, in their development. And then, again, I don't even know, like, if the, the founders, obviously, they don't think about things in linear time because they're like, yeah, come back whenever. Right. If it's a hundred years, if it's a billion years, we'll still be around because time doesn't really matter to us. We're immortal. Yeah. We just absorb information. It's very Borg like in a way. Yeah. But I agree with what you're saying specifically because you have to be able to create this in the canon, in the structure of the narrative that you formed. So all we're really doing, at least all I'm really doing is trying to speculate why, but it's not a very defensible position. Okay. Fair. 
fair. It, it's just it, it seems like with all the knowledge that they've absorbed, that knowledge still has some pretty incredible blinders around it. So, but look, that that that's their problem. Um, and now I do want to, <laughs> but I do want to get into you know the, the obviously there are so many roads to go down here, and uh, obviously we're going to talk about the prejudices that are on display here. And um, there was one scene in particular that just really jumped out at me, among many that jumped out at me. But here's Las pointing out people on the promenade to Odo. He has mumps on his forehead. She has a wrinkled nose, but basically they're alike. And I love this moment so much because it nicely mimics the Enterprise crew on mm-hmm. Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Think back to mm-hmm. TOS between Loka and Beale. And here is Spock and, and Kirk, for that matter, just sizing them up and going, well, from our point of view, you're the same. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. And I love what DS9 has done here, which is, okay, you take a moment like that, which is, you know, a, a spaceship representing us in the future, finding this planet of humanoids, and the, those are the last two left. For anybody who doesn't remember, it's half black on one side, half white on the other side, and then flip it around. And here's DS9 taking that same idea, but zooming out, not, not to the 30,000-foot view, but the, you know, 30,000-light-year view, and saying, this is the same thing. They, you know, uh, Klingon, Bajoran, whatever, let, let's really narrow it down. Still walk on two legs. They still eat, drink, and breathe air. So to somebody else that isn't from that uh, reality, they will see them as the same. I thought it was very clever. Definitely from a changeling's point of view. And before you get any emails, John, I know that you meant to say Bele instead of Bele. Oh, okay. Very said, good. Very yeah. good. Yes, yeah. so I was confusing him t- with the famous Brazilian soccer star, Peel. Exactly, exactly. And I didn't, I mean, but you were on a tear, so I didn't want to, like, you know, stop your momentum there. Yes, yes, I, thank I completely you. understand what you're saying. And yes, too, it's almost like a god. When a god looks down from this 30,000-foot view, everyone looks like ants. Yeah, yeah. You know, this ant may be a different color, a different shade of amber. It could have, they could be larger, smaller. But in that same respect, they're just ants. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's where he was getting at, especially when he was talking to Odo about their similarities as opposed to their differences. Yes, definitely. Do you want to get into this bit with the, the scene in the bar? Uh, because you, you have some things to say. Oh, about- <laughs> hell yes. <laughs> okay, because you, you have some things to say about O'Brien. But I, I'm going to start it off by saying some stuff about uh, Lass here because he, mm. he's uh, – look, he, he's an insufferable jerk. <laughs> we'll get into that later. But see, I don't think – but I don't think he is. Uh, okay, well. Well, I, yeah. I, I think he, okay. he is in, in many respects. Uh, but okay, so okay. there's that scene that he comes into Quark's and, and he confronts Odo's friends. And the first mm-hmm. thing I'm going to call him out on here, and I'm very curious to see uh, how you go down this road with O'Brien. He, mm-hmm. he goes on this mini rant and, and he basically invokes the natural fallacy about how the herd of Volg died out because of the humanoids and about how humanoids do the same thing everywhere and they can't be trusted, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I thought it was clever, even if it was very undiplomatic and very misplaced, mm-hmm. that O'Brien points out, uh, okay, yeah, but, you know, humanoids can't disguise themselves as anything they want. So, we, you know, maybe we're at a disadvantage here when it comes to the trust issue. That's just kind of how we are. And, and I, I do want to acknowledge that Lass's point 
is correct in that uh, we have seen certainly because he's making a very clear parallel if we talk about every uh, creature, every being, every interaction in Star Trek being a reflection of modern humanity and our concerns in the real world and the present, uh, the idea that humanoids, humans, have a tendency to mess up their environment and uh, run other animals to extinction. And yeah, that, that is reality. At the same time, humanoids are a naturally occurring part of that same ecosystem. They use different types of tools. They make different types of decisions. Uh, their evolution carries on in the path that, uh, that they are biologically and evolutionarily determined. So uh, I, I, I know what he's trying to say here. At the same time, you can make the argument against it just saying like, well, well look – in any given ecosystem, in any given food chain for that matter, there will be those that succeed and those that do not. Um, and he happened to choose some in that case that did not succeed. And I get it. I get it. You know, I, I also feel like he is invoking this fallacy to say like those Vogue were somehow better. They were somehow more real. They were somehow more honest. And to be quite frank, we don't know the situation with the humanoids on that planet. So True. He, he's asking a lot of us at that point. And he's painting with a very broad brush to say, this is what you were all like because of this one experience that I had. But I think that, I think that the issue here is not so much what he's saying, it's how he's saying it, which rubs people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rubbing you the wrong way. But let's take a look at yeah. it from, let's put on our our traditional Star Trek Gene Roddenberry hats and look at Loss <laughs> from the position of he is unconditioned to be part of a conditioned society. So he's only speaking what he believes to be true and what his experience have led him to believe. That doesn't make him wrong. It just makes him socially unacceptable, which is why Odo kind of sequesters him off and says, you know what? You're not a bad being. You're mm. not a bad life form. It's just that you have not yet made the concessions to be part and fit into this society. And that's Law's whole point mm -hmm. with Odo. You have made too many concessions to the point where you're actually denying who you are. And that's what I love about Loss. Loss is very refreshing because he speaks the honest, unfiltered, unexpurgated truth but, but, about, him, but, but, but about I, himself. I, true, true. But I, I would say that who Odo is... You know, it, that is still a combination of the experiences that he has had. So who he is, is this changeling who is influenced by the people around him and the emotions that he feels for mm -hmm. Kira, et cetera. You know? So it, it's a little disingenuous to say for somebody else to come along and say, no, no, that, that's not really who you are. I, the, the, I, how dare you? Who, who are you to say that? You know, but it, I don't think not, it's, not you. It's lots. Not, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's not. It's yeah. not as disingenuous, in my opinion, as it is just curt, just hmm. brutally honest, right? Because there are those people in a party. When you get to a, in a group of people, someone comes along and just doesn't have the social capacity to be able to smooth his way into a conversation. That's loss in this example. <laughs> Absolutely, <right? laughs> yeah. but I, I think that it's because he was devoid of any type of social interaction or socializing contact that he's just feral in a very specific way. Mm. He doesn't know the nuances. He doesn't know how to fit in, quote unquote. But why does he have to? I think that's also his point here. But my bigger problem here 
is the way that the chief responds to that. Because you know what? You're a Starfleet. Well, I was going to say officer, but he's not. Yeah, he's but not, you have been surrounded. Yeah. yeah. But you've been surrounded by some of the best. Captain Picard has mentored you. Mm-hmm. Several officers that are are very, I think, you know, at least open-minded or at least polished enough to say, like, you know what? Maybe you should not act this way. I think he was actually baiting Loss to do something. Mm. What was the difference between what he said to Loss versus what the Klingons said to Loss? Hmm. Right? Yeah. That's where yeah. I'm coming from with the chief's behavior. The chief is Starfleet. He should at least accept the fact that Odo has vouched for this particular being. Sure, he's a little rough around the edges, but so's Worf, so's Martok, so's Quark. Mm-hmm. They've all been socially accepted mm-hmm. because they've been around the chief, and the chief is comfortable with them, which is why the chief says, we accept Odo, because Odo has made the concession to be comfortable or to make them comfortable mm. around him. Yeah. And Loss has not. And the Klingons that approached him, they're like, we don't know you. You're a founder. We think you're a founder. You're a changeling. Stick. Oh, that didn't work. But Miles had Phaser at the ready, at the beginning. Very true. Very true. Well, and, and what you're so, saying here actually uh, very well mirrors what Quark points out to Odo. You're smart enough to know that people don't want to be reminded that you're different, which is... It's kind of chilling. I mean, it, because it is this brutal honesty about what's going on in the psyches of these people around him. And I, I, it, it absolutely cuts to the bone of what's going on here. Odo and sure. Loss being very different. And, and in that particular scene, being reminded implicitly and explicitly about how different he is. And, you know, sure, with Odo, uh, unlike with Loss, as you're pointing out here with uh, Chief O'Brien's reaction – yeah, you know, Odo, he, he doesn't have anybody outright being hateful toward him on a daily basis, but it's no wonder why he feels unworthy. And and, and even in regards to Kira at, at points in this episode, which is really the, the personal tragedy that's going on here. And it's all because of stuff like that. And and I, I kind of, I, I watch scenes like that, and uh, it is very... Um, you can tell that, that these feelings are running deep in these characters. And I jotted all this down because I don't think there are good answers necessarily here. Mm-hmm. It is just sort of a reflection of the sad reality of how these people are feeling. And I, I, oh my gosh, uh, I, when Cork is describing their reaction, the way that, his, that humanoids would respond to a snake uh, that's hidden and would, would jump out and try to bite them, it's, it's genetic, you know. More, more than mm-hmm. our poor old genes can handle. And that's um, maybe that's what we're seeing here in O'Brien that is so ugly that is a reflection on how some of us would be. That is this gut instinctual reaction that is not as good as the reaction that, that you're pointing out that someone more diplomatic would have, that we would hope to be and aspire to act like. But don't you remember say in season one or season two, not too long ago, where Odo would just be sitting there and he would scoff just in the middle of a conversation and then he would fold his arms. He's like, you humanoids always do this or that or why do you place such importance on this or that? Loss is doing the exact same thing. The difference is, is that you have a point of comparison between Odo, who has been conditioned to act a certain way to get along, versus somebody who was very much like Odo five seasons ago, mm-hmm. who has not had that, that luxury of, or has not capitulated 
to that type of behavior to be the being that he's supposed to be as he's trying to encourage Odo to be, yeah. you know, you have put on, you have been chained down. Yeah. You have not, you have been chained down by the conformity of society, the society that you believe are your friends. But once you lash out, once you change yourself in a way where it, it terrifies them, where do you think that trust is going to go? Mm. Right. It's going to go back to the beginning and you're going to have to earn that all again. And then you're going to, you're just going to have to make more concessions to prove that you can be trusted again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to move forward to like one more thing. Sure. And this may be a delicate topic. I don't want to sound like I'm talking about it out of turn or indelicately, but I do believe that there is a certain sexual intimacy between Odo and Loss when they join in full form mm-hmm. as a link. Yeah. How did you feel about that? No, I, I was thinking the same thing. And, and, and in fact, there is a scene, um, and, and forgive me because it, the, there are a lot of scenes that kind of run together, but they're in Odo's quarters. Um, they've had this argument, but then Loss turns to Odo and reaches out his hand, and it's this very vulnerable desire to link. Like they, they've had this blow up, but then the guard comes down and, and I need this. I need this touch. I need this linking. And I think you can read that in so many ways that are all perfectly valid. It's emotional. It is physical. It is because we don't understand the intricacies of uh, changeling sexuality. To us, we can say that there is a sexual element to it, it simply because it is so personal and intimate. So I, I, I thought it was all beautifully played, especially because, well, we, we do get a scene at the end of the episode where Odo essentially tries to link with Kira mm-hmm. by opening himself up literally physically. So we're making right. a, a, a parallel there. And I think the show does a really good job of showing and not telling. It doesn't need to hit you over the head with the idea. We are free to take whatever inference and interpretation of that that we want. But I think they absolutely sell the idea that this is deeply profound and personal. Would it be fair to say because when they link, they become as naked as as any being could possibly, naked emotionally, no barriers, naked emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually – would it be fair to say that this would be the first quote unquote omnisexual species that we've seen on Star mm. Trek? That it, it could very well be because, yes, like Odo is in a relationship with a woman, but there is nothing that has indicated that the changelings necessarily, because they can take any form that they want, we don't know if they necessarily identify as male or female or see others, other creatures, they would simply be another creature, not necessarily a, you know, male or female or multi-gendered or uh, omni-gendered sexual uh, 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 creature beyond them. So I, I love this idea that you have a character with whom you can be so free with how they express themselves and express intimacy with others. It's funny that Martok didn't show up to voice his objections in person. Very strange indeed.
So, John, we've finally come to the end of Chimera, and as we are traditionally want to do at the end of every Mission Log episode, we're going to take a look at uh, if this episode has withstood the test of time and then take a look at the morals, meanings, and messages. And usually there's a little bit of banter and repartee, but we have so much to get to and so much to conclude <laughs> that we're just going to cut to the chase yeah. here. And without any further ado, let's start with you. Does this episode hold up for you? Well, I have to say, this is a really nice change of pace given the somewhat uh, unfortunate episodes that we've had lately. I mean, you and I might have gotten some uh, some fun just by bantering those around, and I think our listeners maybe had some fun, or, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe they're, they were horrified at uh, what we were saying about some of the recent episodes. But this one is unique, and, and it is a big change for what we've had recently. And it really comes down to just how incredibly good J.G. Herzler mm-hmm. is, bringing this kind of smug superiority along with vulnerability to loss. And those things are are presented in such a natural and believable way for the character. And you have to hand it to him the way he is the perfect foil to Odo, because it brings out this whole other dimension in Renee's performance. And Renee is always excellent in DS9. So to get even more out of him is just a pleasure to see. There's no shortage of great actors at Star Trek's disposal, but this was absolutely 100% the right choice. I I love Jeffrey Combs. I love many other guest stars we've had, but boy, did they just accidentally land on the right choice for this Mm -hmm. character. I also feel, and this might be dipping into our morals, meanings, messages here, I feel like this is an episode that very cleverly just drops these deep moments of contemplation very casually in the dialogue and then doesn't hammer you over the head with explanation or further discussion. There are moments, they happen, and there are, some are subtle, some are very dramatic, but then they they just move on. And you just sort of have to sit there and go, ooh, wait, what did I get out of that? There are Star Trek ideas aplenty. And that really becomes apparent. You, you could just savor this episode from scene to scene. And we could have just picked one moment say, like the uh, the Quark rant. We could, we could have just picked that and said, we're just going to do our whole episode on right, that. exactly. <laughs> and, and decide what we get out of it, you know? So I think for all of those reasons, this episode holds up very well, primarily on the strength of the performances, but uh, also on the strength of the history that we've gotten with Odo. This is a transitional episode for him, and and it's done quite well, and we've gotten that before where, you know, this builds on what we got when we met uh, casual Odo, <laughs> you know, Children of Time. It it builds on these other pieces that we've gotten of him and seeing his relationship develop with Kira. I don't know if it would just stand up on its own. And you just go like, oh, here, go watch this. And here's what Star Trek is about. I think this has strengths because of the journey we've had so far. And the fact that we are heading toward wrapping up the series as a whole, those make this special. Uh, What about you, Norman? Well, yes and no. But for all the right Hmm. and all the other right reasons. (laughs) I actually think this episode suffers from too many traditional conceptual Star Trek philosophies, which made it really difficult to decipher what this episode was trying to say. 
I mean, aside from, and I can make a joke at this, but aside from like Kara being able to go into the security brig and no cameras involved and letting loss yeah, out. Okay, so yeah. put that aside. I think this yeah. is actually a very successful episode overall because if you choose one of the traditional Star Trek idealisms in this story and follow that thread, pick one because there are many, especially loss's narrative where we explore the intellectual exploration of isms like sexism Hmm. and racism and exclusionism and xenophobia and discover that intolerance still exists in this century, in the 24th century of Deep Space Nine. That's what makes this episode relevant. And that's why I would flag it for a rewatch or recommend it to somebody just to say, hey, look, this is a very conceptually high performing episode at the at the levels where, say, Gene Roddenberry would have written an episode like this, mm-hmm. but if he didn't stop himself from writing too many ideas, right? Yeah, okay. Too, too many notes. Many notes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And in, in many ways, like, Camara shares the same kind of energy that uh, we have seen in previous Star Trek episodes, especially, say, in the original series. Um Let's take the outward hatred that O'Brien has for loss at the very beginning of the episode. And that can actually cascade over into how Cisco responded to loss, then obviously how the Klingons responded to loss. There's a similar energy there from, say, when Kirk and the miners first encountered the Horta in Devil in the Dark. Hmm. It was a hatred based on misunderstanding. It was very much the Hmm. same way that you know, Kirk and Spock and McCoy, they wanted to hunt down the Gorn for destroying the colony on Cestus Three, but then suddenly realized that the Gorn, in explaining it away, albeit through the Metron's, you know, influence and, <laughs> you know, uh, manipulating the view screen, where the Gorn says, you encroached on our territory, you invaded us. And it made them yeah. think and pause and say, did we actually really do that? Was our hatred for them that strong based on our very first impression to the point where Kirk was going to murder the Gorn at the very end and then paused and said, maybe I was in the wrong. That's, I think, Mm. what we're kind of getting at here in this episode where you have this misinterpretation, like in Let There Be Your Last Battlefield, this misinterpretation Mm -hmm. of these first contact situations that can be handled either diplomatically for some or aggressively for others. But where does that leave a character like Odo and a character like Loss, where Loss is basically saying, see, I just proved myself right again. Yeah. Well, and and, uh, so it's interesting that you say this, that that there are uh, too many ideas, too many notes, because when we talk about morals, meanings, messages, that's kind of where I got stuck because there's so much to choose from here um, that there is a lot being addressed. And as I said a moment ago, I, I kind of like the loose ends. I, it, you know, look, I, I do like my Star Trek when you get to uh, every now and then get preachy and do an episode like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield and say, see, racism's stupid and here's how we grow beyond it. And, we, you know, just let those people kill each other. We can't do anything about that, but we can be better. Okay. Um, but I also like the, uh, the the sort of more introspective, uh, more ambiguous stories as well. And what this one has done really well is it's taken these big ideas and it's put the 
the difficulty of those big ideas in the emotional lives of the characters, uh, and in particular Odo, who I think we feel a great deal of sympathy and empathy for in this episode. So some of the things that I would take away from this one and, and looking at the, the three M's, I, I'm going to take it out on Lass here a little bit and just say who in this episode is being the most prejudiced. You know, So mentioned Last Battlefield. And, and it, it serves – it's not necessarily a parallel to this story, but it's a touch point in Star Trek's history of exploring our human reactions and shortcomings. All right. So look, Lass acts terribly to most everyone around him. All right. I, I, I still will hold to that. But, but I think the script does a really good job of building the case of why he is. So I will give them that absolutely. At the same time, everybody around him is actually engaging in the same kind of behavior that has gotten him to this point. Even Cisco basically washes his hands of it saying like, oh, it's not a good idea for Lass to be shape-shifting. You know, there was something really sinister about that line where, yeah, there's a realism to that, but it's also Cisco just saying like, well, it's just, it just his behavior, which is based on who he is fundamentally. Yeah, you just can't do that in front of us. Mm-hmm. That, that, there, there's something really disturbing about that. And like I mentioned before, that line that Quark has uh, to Odo, you're smart enough to know that people don't want to be reminded that you're different. And it, and it puts this uh, – first of all, it, it displays Odo's own discomfort and embarrassment at himself. But it has this kind of like this really ugly way that we as humans have tried to deal with racially charged issues in the past, which is just to say, don't be like yourself – because that's inconvenient for others. Thank you, John, for saying that so much. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you so much. So that, you're welcome. I, I, that, is, uh, that is something that is at the, at the very tragic heart of this episode. Everyone sees, well, Lass in particular, uh, the, the outsider as a threat. And we start to describe Odo in those terms as well. And there are good reasons for those things too. So, so where do you move the needle to then disarm both sides here to see if you can reach some level of compromise? And, you know, look, you, you go to Quark in that very powerful scene again. This isn't time for a changeling pride demonstration on the promenade. Again, just, yeah, it, it would make it so much better for us if you weren't you. It reinforces this thing that's very real that that most often it's the marginalized groups who are being told by those in power when and how they should feel about their own mm-hmm. position. You know, I, I'm going to skip forward a little bit here because I, I feel like there are some other points to be made. Um, he, here's my question about Lass. Is he – sort of insufferable <laughs> because that happens to be his personality or is that the way he is because of his nature? His smug superiority comes from his experiences, which are tied to his physical reality as a changeling. It has led him to be suspicious or even hateful of anyone not like him. Are all changelings doomed to that? Is Odo the one outlier, the one who just happens to have a set of experiences that allowed him to adapt and even fall in love with a solid? Is it because he's actually younger and less experienced? Or is it because he has a weakness, which is his desire to assimilate and be more like the humanoids around him? 
I don't have answers for these. I see this episode as a character study designed specifically to push the Odo character further. And I think that's what I'll take away from it. We, we got to watch Odo have yet another challenge to his whole perception of his existence and his place in the world. And he chose what for us is the better option to follow his heart. And there's the, the, the nice part at the end of this, which is Odo saying, you have no idea what it means to love someone enough to let them go. Wow. So many, so many ideas. <laughs> and I think that, again, that, that just kind of proves that this episode is relevant, but at the same time, very difficult to navigate. Because there are so yep. many highbrow ideas here. And I, I'm just going to stand firm on my defense for loss. Because what I okay. love about his character is that he's so refreshingly honest. And I think that in certain circumstances, there are social gatherings or social niceties that can use a bit of that you know, unfiltered and uh, brutal kind of candor. right? Um, what was the name of the Romulan organization in Picard or in Discovery, the, um, the Kuat Milad? Oh, it, Milad? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Milad, Milad yeah, Kuat. The, the yeah, brutal yeah. honesty. Because very yeah. much uh, in a similar way, Spock was like that. A lot of people did not like Spock at first because his logic was too calculating, too honest. He would point out flaws in people because he didn't really understand the social niceties because those are tied uh, together with emotions. So that's where hmm. loss is. I found loss to be very Vulcan in this episode hmm. because the way that he approached people, he didn't have the luxury or the, the scale of how to gauge emotional reaction. Why? Because it doesn't matter to him. Now, sure, you can make the argument that uh, from our standpoint that he is a jerk, that he's rough around the edges, <laughs> that he's brusque and he's curt and all the things that make him uncomfortable to be around – but why is that a fault for somebody who's never been conditioned to be that way? That's where mm -hmm. I see loss. So it, mm -hmm. this kind of ties into the morals and meanings and messages that I came away with. And I also kind of tie it into being a person of color, being an Asian American, and being, quote unquote, what we have been called as the model minority, because we have conformed mm. in a certain way as Asian Americans to be that way. So the big question is, is what is the price of being oneself? Being one's self. What does one have to sacrifice in order to make those around them feel secure and accepting? Now, these are incredibly powerful concepts that this episode has the courage to explore. And I believe that loss was the perfect mirror to hold up to Odo for us to see just how much Odo has chosen to sacrifice in order to quote unquote, go along to get along. But what mm. has that done to Odo? Has he in law's opinion, has he in fact, as Loss described, been limited and deprived from his truest potential? Is conformity ever the right path to take? Odo has chosen not to outwardly demonstrate his abilities for fear of how his friends and the general public would react. And perhaps rightfully so, as seen when the Klingons attacked Loss on the promenade, condemning Loss for just wanting to be himself. 
So I found myself thinking about past episodes of Star Trek when other quote-unquote threatening aliens were met with similar acts of aggression because as humanoids, like you said, John, as as Quark so eloquently stated to Odo, our tolerance to Mm. other life forms doesn't extend beyond the two-arm, two-leg variety. So I'm going to quote something from Star Trek The Next Generation. Doctor, the sperm whale on Earth devours millions of cuttlefish as it roams the oceans. It is not evil. It is feeding. This is what Picard said when he was defending the crystalline entity's nature as a sentient life form in the episode Silicon Avatar. There are so many different examples of this in so many different aspects of the series. But it basically comes down to what is the cost of conformity? Because I think many of us have chosen such paths from time to time in our actual lives so that we could fit in. But at the end of the day, how did that actually make us feel? And I would like to leave my final thoughts here with a quote from Canadian rock royalty, the legendary band Rush, who said it perfectly in their song Subdivisions. Some will sell their dreams for small desires or lose the race to rats, get caught in ticking traps, and start to dream of somewhere to relax their restless flight. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, bada bing, bada bang. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. I think Quark is wrong. A changeling pride parade could be quite a sight. Just don't eat the food. It's probably a changeling. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.